Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm Ethan Warren. And this is The Great Hunting Caper. Jim Henson and Brian Froud had barely made it out of the Dark Crystal with their finances and reputations intact. But they weren't finished. Jim felt they could do better. They could improve upon what hadn't worked with the Dark Crystal. There needed to be human characters this time, he knew that much. And, as just about every critic of the Dark Crystal had pointed out, it would be great if the next one was funny. Jim liked the idea of starting with folklore of some kind. He began pulling from Asian cultures, but Froud had other thoughts. He liked goblins. All right then, Jim could do goblins. What do goblins do? Goblins, Froud elaborated, steal babies. Great, now Jim had a story. But what to hang it on? Froud continued spitballing. What about a maze? That, he figured, was, quote, a really good metaphor for the soul's journey, end quote. And with that, Jim finally had a new project for the Creature Workshop, and not a moment too soon. He had kept them in limbo for years waiting for a new project, and he was quickly losing craftspeople to other work, like Disney's Return to Oz. At last, he could set them back to work on this goblin maze idea. Now he just needed someone to write it. The saga began with a novella that Jim commissioned from Fraggle Rock songwriter Dennis Lee. He handed the novella to Monty Python veteran Terry Jones, whose comic touch Jim had long admired, and whose medievalist bona fides, including a well-regarded literary analysis of the Canterbury Tales, seemed like the right match for the milieu of the maze movie. Jones had little use for Lee's novella, but was more compelled by Brian Froud's concept art, which he used as fuel anytime he had an impasse in the script. Just pick up another drawing, and a new scene or scenario jumps out. Jones finished his draft, but Jim deemed it insufficient in serving the protagonist, preteen Sarah, sister to the goblin-napped baby. Laura Phillips submitted a draft that served Sarah but lacked Jones's humor and visual wit. At a loss, Jim brought in renowned fixer Elaine May, handing her not just the drafts, but a pile of notes from executive producer George Lucas, a friend of Jim's after Henson Associates developed Yoda for The Empire Strikes Back, not to mention lending Frank Oz's talents as a puppeteer and voice actor. Labyrinth, uh, when I first saw it, was probably my favorite movie that I saw around that time. I watched it again and again. Um, I remember there were parts of that movie that made me laugh so much. Um, and I love the world building of it. It is an example of a movie that, and I, I, I'm not someone who is, um, shy about like, Oh, I don't want to revisit that movie because I loved it so much. I don't want to see it at a later age because I think maybe more than most movies, it's a movie that when I've seen it a few times as I've become an adult, and in the most recent time that I saw it as a fully middle-aged man, it really didn't do it for me. Like, the most recent time I saw it, all I could see was the things that I wish were different. Um, all I could see was the the jokes that went on too long, the, the jokes that um, 
didn't quite land. The there were a lot of things I appreciated about it, but um, weirdly, in some ways, uh, and I say this as someone who's obviously a huge fan of George Lucas, I feel like there is um, there is a, an element of George Lucas's sense of humor that sort of invades the movie. And I don't know if this is just me projecting into it. He may have had absolutely nothing to do with it, but I do feel like there's an aspect of like, um, some of the, a lot of the comedy in it feeling sort of like juvenile in a way that I, I don't think is true even for like Sesame street, even for a show that's directed at babies. I feel like the humor on Sesame Street is more sophisticated than a lot of the humor in Labyrinth, which is a lot of sort of like running around and bumping into things or fighting a lot of like, no, you don't. I, I never would. Yeah, you know, like a lot of the tone of it is very like, uh, you know, hit someone on the head, bump into something, you know, just it, it it's one of those things where, you know, it's. It doesn't take away how much I loved it when I saw it as a kid. But it's interesting to me because the movie hasn't changed. I've changed. You know, I loved it when it came out. And it's not one of those things where, um, oh, it hasn't it hasn't aged well because I think there are little kids <clears throat> who would still love this movie if they saw it now. But it's feels like a kid's movie in a way that none of the Muppet movies I, I I would even guess if I were to watch Follow That Bird again that it would feel like less of a kid's movie than Labyrinth feels like to me in, in and I say that in the slightly negative sense of how the best kids movies for me tend to be films where you're like it's not even a kids movie where you look at something like Toy Story and be like it's a kids movie but also it's not a kids movie you know Whereas Labyrinth to me very much, and when you look at the fact that it's like Terry Jones and Elaine May um, working on the script for it, as an adult, I find it hard to see. If you were like, what do you think Elaine May added? I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you know? I just don't see it. In it. And um, there's a sadness to the loss of I'd like nothing more than to be able to, as an adult, enjoy Labyrinth the way I did as a kid. It's just one of those things. And it almost is like the, in some ways, the opposite of the ending of the movie where, like, she, like, grows up a little, but she then it sort of ends with, like, look, all these creatures are still around in the room and they're having a dance party. And my version of this is, like, no, it's just me in a room. And it's, like, those are not, uh, not uh, part of what I enjoy anymore. While Elaine May's work would meet Jim's approval, writing extended all the way through pre-production and virtually until production itself. Labyrinth, like The Dark Crystal, is a sturdy classical quest narrative, in this case following Sarah, played by Jennifer Connelly. After having her wish granted, for her baby brother Toby to be whisked away by goblins, Sarah must embark on a journey through a stone maze, one populated by Henson-esque psychedelic creations like the Fireys, lanky creatures that seem to be a cross between a bird and a fox and can change heads at will, and a shaft made of faces made of hands. As she makes her way to the heart of the maze, accompanied by the occasionally double-crossing dwarf Hoggle, the lumbering beast Ludo, and the gallant pipsqueak Sir Didymus, Sarah is bedeviled by the goblin king Jareth, played by David Bowie, 
who tries to prevent Sarah from reaching the center of the maze, tempting and teasing her all the while. Eventually, of course, Sarah saves the day and Toby and returns home a newly mature young woman by virtue of a fateful dalliance with magic and David Bowie. This was possibly my first favorite movie. Much like Sesame Street, I do not remember life before Labyrinth. Labyrinth always was part of my life. I have seen this movie so many times, I don't know, probably a couple hundred. And that sounds like a lot, but I had it on VHS and I watched that VHS till it broke. So I watched it so many times and I've seen it in the theater like four times, I think. Um, what about every, what, what, how, you know, like, first of all, Labyrinth is how I discovered David Bowie, the greatest of great musicians. Um, I didn't even know David Bowie was a rock star. I just knew him as, as, you know, as Jareth from Labyrinth until I was in like high school. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, <laughs> David Bowie was like super famous when he did this movie. <laughs> what? Um, and then as a brunette, this is this is silly, but as a brunette, the 80s and early 90s was very like blonde heavy again, like the sort of like the 50s were where and 60s where all the stars, all the kid stars, all the adult stars, there's so many blondes, all the hot chicks in like the TV shows were blondes and Labyrinth had a brunette. That was very empowering as a little brunette kid who always felt like I wasn't pretty because I didn't have blonde hair. And then I, Labyrinth was like, no, you can be Jennifer Connelly. I'm not Jennifer Connelly. I don't think anyone can be as beautiful as Jennifer Connelly, but it's nice to see <laughs> brunette representation. Um, there's so many characters in this that are interesting. Again, they, the attention to detail in the different puppets, in the puppet characteristics, in the, the settings, is a, it's a really astonishing um, because you have like these small characters, small characters that should be throwaway, like the worm, right? But the worm is so like his little hair, his little cravat. They set up that he has a wife, you know, that she she can make some tea for you. Like who, he didn't, they didn't need to have that much detail with that character, but they did. And then you have all the different doors. So many different silly doors. It's amazing. But my my favorite, favorite thing about Labyrinth, all of this, I love all of it, is um, Ludo. Ludo, again, much like Snuffleupagus, Ludo is this big, giant, awkward thing. And he looks mean, but he's so sweet. He's just a big, he's just a big sweetie. And... And as somebody who like always, this is like a therapy session, as somebody who always like had trouble making friends, like when Ludo's like, you want to be my friend? I was like, oh no, I feel it. Um, but also as someone who a lot of my childhood was spent in my room playing by myself with my toys. Labyrinth is, as a kid, it spoke to me on that level because all of her friends are her toys, right? And her dog. And, and she goes through this journey of, of realizing by the end that like maybe her toys and her dog aren't as important as her family, right? And, and growing up and like finding uh, a place in the adult world. And it's kind of, you watch it, when I watched it when I was older and there's the part with the pack rat lady who's like, oh, you need, you know, you need your little uh, this toy and that toy and you don't want to miss Flopsy Bear and all that stuff. And she's like getting covered in her her junk. 
I was like, oh no, this, this feels too close to home because I was also somebody who had a hard time getting rid of things from my childhood that I was emotionally attached to and sort of the point of the movie towards the end is that it's maybe okay to let some of those things go like you'll still always have the memories so it's again it's this movie that's this like fantasy and David Bowie's singing all these songs and Jennifer Connelly it's got these costumes but in the end that message about growing up and letting like being um acknowledging how these toys and this imagination and all these things help you grow, but still being able to let it go and move into another phase of your life. Like that's what the movie's trying to show you is okay. And that it's hard and that it feels like a journey. And then it feels like you're abandoning your friends, but that's not really the, the you can't take those memories away. Like, so I Labyrinth, I think gets, I don't understand why not enough people watch it because it, it works on so many levels. It works for childhood development. It works as a fantasy film. It works as a musical. Some of my favorite David Bowie songs are in this. Um, uh, as the World Falls Down, killer. Fire Gang, great song. Also, the way they filmed that, you know, because this is the 80s, so you you didn't quite have, uh, depending on your budget, you didn't really have like computers for a lot of people, right? This movie did not have a computer budget, really. So what they did is they they covered the puppet puppeteers in black velvet. They put them behind, in front of black velvet, and then they like old. It was like pre green screen. They used black velvet to remove the puppeteers from the sequence. It's amazing. The old VHS actually had a making of on it. Um, it was one of the first making ofs I've ever watched because it was just like at the end of the VHS tape. Uh, that's amazing. I don't know. There's there's so many good characters, so many funny jokes. So as a kid, it works, you know, on those kid levels. But as an adult, it's got all these like jokes that you're like, I don't know if that's appropriate. I don't know if I should have seen that as a kid. But as an adult, you're laughing. Um, I don't know. There's so many, so many good characters. The um, the reference. There's a reference to uh, the. Bachelor of the Bobby Sox Soxer, but I didn't know that. That's the Cary Grant movie where it's like, you remind me of the babe. What babe, the babe with power. Like that whole thing comes from a classic movie. I had no idea. I just knew it from this crazy David Bowie movie. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I don't even know what else. There's that dress that she wears in the um, ballroom sequence. I always wanted that dress. Like, how did they make that? I saw a, a, a person on Instagram remade the dress like completely remade it and I was like what I'm really I'm very impressed when people can do stuff like that like cosplay that that is that intense um it also as I got older realized sort of how quasi inappropriate the relationship between <laughs> between like Bowie's character and Sarah it's like how did they put that in a movie? But then is it supposed to be warning like young girls about, you know, lechy old men? I don't know. Maybe is the movie aware that he's a bit lechy? I think so. But I don't know. But I think this might be the movie I've rewatched the most. It it might actually be. Because I've watched it so many times. <laughs> I probably could like, you know, in Fahrenheit 451 where they like recreate books and you have to memorize it. Like, I could probably be this movie if all movies died. Like, if they burned every copy of this movie, I could just recreate it.
that's how many times I've seen it. Very, yeah, I just, this, and then, you know, again, like the, the attention to detail in the world building, like similar to Dark Crystal, where everything is so unique and the characters are so unique, except like Dark Crystal's like the dark side where everything's really, really creepy. Everything on this is like abs absurd and surreal, but not necessarily creepy. Like there's the fire gang, I think is pretty creepy when you're a kid because they're like ripping off people's heads. But for the most part, it's like the other side of that same fantasy where that was like dark fantasy and this is sort of light fantasy, but they've created a mythology and a world and all these individual characters. There's so many goblins, like so many different kinds of goblins. Um, there's Sir Didymus who rides his little, his little dog. I love Sir Didymus. I don't know. It's it's a movie that um, really spoke to me on so many levels as a kid. And then I watch it as an adult, and I'm still in awe of of the world building. I'm still in awe of the performances. I still love the songs. I still think it's hilarious. And I think a lot of that has to do with all the different writers who made sure that that it worked for children and adults in a way that not every every sort of Henson thing does. You know, some of it is very much for kids with a little bit of stuff for adults. And this one I think cuts the balance really, really well and plays still plays great on the big screen. Like if you ever get a chance to, to see it, I just, it's one of those ones if they're playing it, I'm like, we're going, I'm seeing it again. Like I learned about MC Escher from this movie. You know, as a kid, I didn't know what any of that that was I just thought that set piece was really cool but it's still really cool they talk a little bit about how they do that in the special feature also but not not so much that it ruins the the um you know how cool it is when he's like walking upside down but enough that you're like oh damn that was cool but kind of what I like about it is that so much of it is these practical effects um so anyone who loves practical effects like this is a fun movie to see sort of um unique practical effects like why they didn't need David Bowie like walking upside down on a MC Escher style you know steps but they did and they figured out how to do it it looks still looks really cool today if you did that today with CGI or something it would not look as cool because you would know that it was a little computer David Bowie whereas when you watch it you're like how'd they do that um oh oh I guess actually the last thing I have to mention is the the bog of eternal stench because it's just it's hilarious and gross and um still to this day anytime anything smells really bad I like go um because Ludo goes smell bad or something like that like I I do that um that Ludo impersonation a lot and nobody knows what I'm doing because no one apparently has seen this movie but they should because it's great and it's full of really I didn't realize that at the time, but that, that little bits of sort of Monty Python style humor really makes it timeless, I think. Jim had figured Jareth would be a puppet, but eventually he decided on a live actor. His first instinct was to cast Kevin Klein, at the time a respected stage actor, but then he had a brainstorm. We thought to make Jareth a music person, someone who could change the film's whole musical style. When it came to casting a rock star, there was little doubt in Jim's mind. It had to be Sting but his sons John and Brian intervened before it was too late. Sting, they explained, was a flash in the pan. If you want an artist, you want David Bowie. When did this movie come into your life? Because this is the one that hit me at the right age. I think that's right, too. Yeah, um, probably on a library VHS copy in that, like, 
I think we knew, I think I was aware of the Muppets. I'm not sure if I knew what the connection was between this and that and the people who made them. But I also loved Lord of the Rings. I loved the Dark Crystal by then. So I, I, I had this appetite for the world, right? Making the world and entering into strange worlds. Um, and it was my introduction to David Bowie. That I know. Yep. And it's an introduction. <laughs> He's right in a, in a almost subconscious or maybe it was conscious. I don't know on Jim's part, but like knowing that this was the body that he needed to make this fantasy work in the same sense that like designing the Muppets was all the little tweaks that needed to go into the, you know, the televisual or cinematic image. David Bowie in this moment was what that film needed and that what the Dark Crystal lacked. And he was right. Yeah, it's so interesting um, that he wanted Jareth to be a puppet initially, because I can't, like, what would the puppet be mm -hmm. um, to mm -hmm. fill the role that, that Jareth needs to fill in, mm -hmm. uh, is it Sarah's uh, life and her awakening? And and it could have been Sting. It would have been fine. I don't, I don't mind that idea as much as John and Brian Henson apparently did. Yeah, Sting just, he's, his every action isn't motivated by sexual tension in the way that David Bowie's sometimes feels. Yeah, Sting Sting was born and lived on planet Earth and, and Bowie, that's a question mark. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, I, and in that way, right, Labyrinth is almost the, the best example of the like floating erotics that sort of is always in the ether of the Henson stuff, but is really in the atmosphere of Labyrinth. And the, the who's who of, of the sort of cosmic gumbo here, the Terry Jones, the Elaine May, the George Lucas. Oh gosh. I mean, and, and, and people were surprised that the soup they made was weird tasting. <laughs> <laughs> and terrifying at times. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, again, and to go back to Gremlins, was an early, like, could not stop thinking about getting lost and feeling lost and not being able to get out. It's the dreamiest of like the movies, I think. Yeah, I would love to know. You can you you can tell what Terry Jones did. Mm -hmm. I would love to know what Elaine May did. Of course, the the big thing about Labyrinth is is David Bowie, you know, and and all of these all of these Henson films, uh, except for Dark Crystal, which you know has the you know the special special thing of being an entirely sort of uh, you know puppet Muppet. Uh, animatronic, you know, creature-based film and has no human characters. All of them uh, have some iconic person in the film, even if it's just for a brief moment, even if it's just uh, Peter Falk, you know, uh, uh, in in Great Muppet Caper as they as they crash land in 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 England. Um, but Labyrinth has the special distinction of being not only a a Henson film, a Muppet film, but a David Bowie film. And it's just, I mean, what a coup. Like, David Bowie as the, as the Goblin King with that costume, uh, doing those songs. Another just beautifully committed performance uh, that feels very singular and feels like something that could have only happened at that time with that team and will never happen again. Not just because there's no... Bowie anymore and there's no Henson anymore and there'll never be people like them ever again but again, but just because that was a time and place that allowed for that kind of thing to happen and I don't think we'll 
we'll ever get that ever again. We'll be right back after this quick break. I remember being initially disappointed by Labyrinth because I wanted something scarier. Uh, the Dark Crystal had given me this appetite for um, this kind of creativity wrestling with much heavier questions. And Labyrinth takes a step, not I don't want to say backwards as if there's some kind of regression, but it takes a step back back into more um, um, more children's entertainment in a sense. The Labyrinth is so much goofier. Um, there are so many, I mean, talk about the influence of Monty Python. There are so many sequences in Labyrinth that are that could have come from Monty Python sketches, may have even been based on Monty Python sketches. Um, and uh, so it's much more episodic, it's much more playful, it's much sillier, but it's also, it was also maybe the first time that I saw Muppet-related things delving into fart jokes and things like that. I just remember thinking, this this feels uh, a little more, a little, a little crasser than the Muppets have been in the past. And so there were, there were things about it that aggravated me. On the other hand, I've been a Bowie fan for life ever since Labyrinth because I thought that that character was so fascinating. I, I was at just the right age uh, to, to have a serious crush on Jennifer Connelly the moment she came on screen. So, um, uh, so there were reasons I was interested in that film. Um, but I started collecting Bowie records after that and working backwards, and I can see why Henson and, and Lucas were so excited about working with him, because there was a sensibility in Bowie's work of blurring the lines. Again, you know, this was a male rock star who also had a line of evening gowns. Uh, this was a male rock star who was willing to challenge definitions when it came to gender, when it came to uh, musical genres, when it came to religion. Um, and uh, that was that was exciting for me. That's where, where creativity happens, is when you're out on the edges of things, uh, looking at what is possible, rather than looking back at the audience and thinking about what will sell. And I think the new documentary, Moon Age Daydream, really um, reaffirms that that was Bowie's passion, that the, the, the most unsatisfying chapter of his career, ironically, overlapped with Labyrinth. It was in the 80s when he was looking for ways to um, build his audience and become more popular and give the people what they wanted. I think Labyrinth was still pretty bizarre, still pretty out there uh, with some of his braver choices. Um, but the music he was making at that time was much more focused on hits than on discovery and so i think he was just a kindred spirit for for henson and lucas he had that innovative spirit that that reckless spirit that knew that more things were possible to me labyrinth is sort of like the flip side of dark crystal where henson's like okay i'm going to take all this weird stuff i want to do this stuff that goes off in all different directions i'm going to take these fantasy designs and I'm going to make a really wacky movie with it. Like a movie that feels like taking Dark Crystal and crossing it with The Muppet Show. It's completely episodic. Some parts work far better than others. I wouldn't argue that it has a consistent tone, 
but I find it so, so much more fun to watch. Um, I love all the silliness. I, as a kid, I didn't like the farting bog. I thought that was in poor taste, but I, uh, I loved Hoggle. I loved all the weird hands. I didn't quite understand David Bowie. Uh, and then as a teen in college, I kept hearing from woman after woman that David Bowie's uh, bulging leotard in that movie was what first made them feel feelings. And uh, so I guess it was very generationally important for that. Jim agreed to a meeting, and the artistic attraction was instant and mutual. Jim made the ask, and Bowie, who had always wanted to write the music for an all-ages movie, agreed. The fit was perfect. Next, it was time to cast Sarah. Jim met with Sarah Jessica Parker, Laura Dern, Jane Krakowski, but nobody felt right. He kept reopening auditions until at last, in 1985, he met 15-year-old Jennifer Connelly. The search was over. Rehearsals began, despite the script not being finished yet. Brian Henson, the Bowie fan, now stepped into the role of Hoggle, voicing the character while puppeteering as part of a team of five. But soon enough, things were derailed. Maurice Sendak, the beloved children's book author, threatened the production with a lawsuit. The script, in Sendak's estimation, was too close to his own story of a goblin nap baby outside over there. And not just that, Jim was using the term wild things, which Sendak considered proprietary after where the wild things are. Sendak warned the list of grievances would go on if production didn't cease immediately. Jim was shocked and hurt. Sendak was a friend going back to the early days of Sesame Street, and the complaints weren't just nitpicks. They were an affront to Jim's renowned integrity. Smarting, Jim agreed to change the wild things to the fireys and acknowledged Sendak in the credits, and the matter was settled. But there were rumblings that Sendak was mainly airing a grudge against Jim. He was closer with Jane Henson, and seemed to have taken her side in the separation. This was the first time Jim had made a movie without performing one of the major characters, and the free time was necessary to help Connolly and Bowie connect with their puppet co-stars. Meanwhile, he juggled innovative creations like the gargantuan puppet known as Humongous. To just stand there and have this large thing walk towards you is one of the most awesome sights in the world. And the Shaft of Hands, which Jim reconfigured into something more complex and impressive than Terry Jones had ever imagined. It's certainly one of the most bizarre and unusual sequences I've ever used in a movie. When the picture wrapped in September 1985, Jim was again reluctant to let the creature shop go. Thus, he took the core group of craftspeople and installed them as the first permanent research and development team at the Jim Henson Creature Shop. By keeping a group of people together, we're staying closer to what we've always done with the Muppets, where we had our own builders. That way you can make it better every time and build on your past work. Jim worked on the edit into the winter, often getting more notes from George Lucas. When the time came to commission an opening title sequence, the CGI owl that orbited the credits represented the first time a real-world creature was created and animated within a computer. Jim was proud of Labyrinth. It seemed to meet his highest standards as an entertainer and audience member. When I go to see a film, when I leave the theater, I like a few things. I like to be happier than I was when I went in. I like a film to leave me with an up feeling. And I like a picture to have a sense of substance. I like it to be about life, about things that matter to me. And so I think it's what we're trying to do with this film, is trying to do a film that would make a difference to you if you saw it. But reviews weren't much kinder than those for The Dark Crystal. 
The critic for the Baltimore Sun called the film, quote, lugubrious and murky, end quote, while Roger Ebert complained that Labyrinth was, quote, too long, without a strong plotline to pull us through, all movies like this run the danger of becoming just a series of incidents. There's no structure to the order of the adventures. Sarah does this, she does that, she's almost killed here, almost trapped there, until at last, nothing much matters. Great energy and creativity went into the construction, production, and direction of this movie, but it doesn't have a story that does justice to the budget. End quote. Worse still, the film made back less than half its $25 million budget and was pulled from theaters in under a month. Jim took the hit personally. I was stunned and dazed for several months trying to figure out what went wrong, where I went wrong. So I love talking about Labyrinth because when I go to talk about Jim Henson, when I put the Labyrinth slide up on the wall, the room explodes. Sometimes people don't know it was Jim Henson. And when I put up Labyrinth, people go, oh my God, I love that movie. And people didn't necessarily know it was Jim Henson. Those who knew it was Jim Henson are waiting for it. Um, What I usually say about Labyrinth is Jim Henson was right about Labyrinth all along, but at the wrong time. Um, In 1986, people didn't quite understand what he was doing. Is it a music video? Is it serious? Is it scary? What's the relationship between Bowie and Jennifer Connelly? You know, it's like, People, people had a lot of questions about it, but it turns it, it becomes sort of this cult classic, and now it's a legit film classic. Uh, that is one of those movies that people just absolutely adore. But that's another movie that looks exactly the way Jim Henson wants it to look. That, again, is Jim Henson's artistic sensibility. That dance in the middle of that movie, that beautiful dance with all the costumes and the masks, that that is Jim Henson. Um, Jim loved that look so much that for years he would host balls where people would dress up like that and they would have parties that people would dress up like that and dance. Like Jim loved that very exotic, elegant, somewhat Victorian look, somewhat fantasy look. I mean, Jim just loved the way that film looked. So that was one thing that everybody told me, Jane Henson in particular, and, and you know, David DeLazer and Al, his attorney, everybody just said, Jim put everything up on that screen exactly the way he wanted it to look. So so there is not there is not a wasted moment in that film. Um, but Labyrinth, you know, again, Labyrinth is one of those that doesn't do great in the theater. Audiences are baffled by it. Critics don't quite know what he's trying to do. They're trying, you know, this is you, you have you have critics saying, um, is it a fairy tale? Is it is it a Wizard of Oz thing? Is it a music video? You know, nobody's nobody's quite sure tonally where he's going with it. Um, again, Jim knew what he was doing. Thirty years on, that—that's the movie that, as I always say, he was right about that just at the wrong time. We all finally caught up with him. He was right. People were going to respond to that movie, love that movie, uh, admire that movie, love everything about it. Uh, It finally happened. It was starting to happen somewhat in his lifetime, but I really wish he could see just how much people adore that film now. As I said, the minute I put that slide up on the wall, the place just goes nuts. Uh, Labyrinth was like one of the few Henson pieces that just completely escaped me in, in, in most of my childhood when I was just a Henson-obsessed child, teen, whatever else. And I, when I was in college, I had a friend who was like, you need to watch this, this is hilarious. Uh, and I, I loved it. I immediately loved it. It was a different type. It, 
it reminded me of Monty Python humor, which made a lot of sense when I found out later on that Terry Jones wrote, you know, a few drafts of the script, but it still felt like incredibly creative and surprising. Um, I like Dark Crystal, but I find Labyrinth to kind of be almost the perfect marriage of the 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 kid version of Henson and the adult version of Henson um, because it just it still has a very uh, a very Henson esque energy to it in a way that I think Dark Crystal uh, doesn't as much and part of that is just the songs and the David Bowie and the jokes uh, but it, it works really well and what's what's so funny about Labyrinth is that my kids I've been I feel like I've been somewhat successful when it comes to uh, instilling that Henson love in my in my children. Uh, my kids have all liked Sesame Street to some degree. My youngest loves it, but my, my oldest two would like it in the middle of their other kid shows. And uh, you know, I my 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 oldest had a we had a run where we were watching all the Muppet movies, but I I never felt like it really stuck. And the one thing though that they have both at about the same age glommed onto was was Labyrinth. That was like their entry point to just being absolutely in love with the movie. My oldest, Maya, first watched it when when she was three, and I was worried that she was going to be a little bit... It was going to air on that this is a little bit too scary for her. And she she just... It became like a Moana or a Finding Nemo or whatever your personal touch point is for a kid movie that they get done with it, and they're like, put it on again. <laughs> like There's nothing else that I want to watch, but, but this. And so we, I, I probably watched Labyrinth, I don't know, 50 times in, in a year. And I, I never got sick of it. And, and it was great to be able to like use that as the jumping off point back to my, to my own childhood. Like, Hey, we can start watching more Muppet stuff. The guy that made Labyrinth, uh, you know, made made this and then when my my middle child who's five now when she was three she has a little bit more of a tendency to get scared uh so i was a little bit hesitant but my my older my oldest was very much pushing her to like you'll love it it's so great because you know she was really into princess stuff and and uh, she watched it and she had a few moments like the helping hands where she kind of started to back up and get a little bit scary but um, she she ended up loving it too, and it became. It, I think it's the only movie that those two shared that it became an obsessed movie with. Like five years removed, where then uh, my middle child Elliot just wanted to watch Labyrinth over and over. Like that that didn't happen where both of them had it with Frozen or Moana or whatever else. But Labyrinth, you know, four years removed was like their touch point movie for a year, and and to this day. Uh, they'll they'll still watch it uh, basically anytime that that I give them the chance to. Um, it is um, it's interesting though that the movie was so poorly received. Well, poorly received is probably not the right word. It, it had a very mixed reception when it came out in 1986, and I've been thinking about that for a while because. I understand where Labyrinth might not be your favorite movie of all time, but people like Gene Siskel were like, this is a lazy offering from Henson. Like, oh, a baby that's been kidnapped. Like, for someone we expect to have a lot of creativity, what a what a lazy effort. And it's, you know, watching it for the first time in like 2000 and seeing it so many times now, it's like, it, it is perplexing to go back and be like, people thought this was like middle of the road or... 
or lazy. It, it just has everything that I think you'd want from either an 80s fantasy movie or a Henson Frank Oz, you know, George Lucas production of that of that era. And I really do think it's because, like, you know, it, it, this stuff is always easy in retrospect. But, like, people were Henson rich in 1986. They didn't even realize it, right? Like, there's, like, three Muppet movies out. You know, there's... They've just had the Muppet Show. Muppet Babies is on TV. Fraggle Rock is on. Um, and so, like, you're just getting, like, Henson products constantly. Like, it's... Like, you know, it's a it's a new Taylor Swift album. Like, post-2019, where every year there's a new album. And, and so you almost had, like, this, I think, ability when you're in that milieu to be like compare it against everything else and i think part of the reason it's had such a big cult following is you know when people discovered it when i did or even on v on vhs you know a couple years after it came out and you realize that all of the like this is the last movie he directed and there's no more direct hints of involvement post 1990 like you realize like oh viewed from the prism of time of like this special wonderful genius who created now this very limited amount of things like he created this and he created this and he created this and he created this and we have no more no more henson stuff i think viewed from that like labyrinth doesn't have to compete with everything else that henson had done in the you know previous 15 years and can be viewed as this you know probably this and the princess bride is I would say like the two best 80s fantasy movies that exist. And I've, I've watched a lot of them and I have a lot of affection for a lot of them, but I, I like these, those two are, are the best. The other thing I really liked about this movie, I, you know, it, it follows very explicitly like the Wizard of Oz and where the wild things are template or even like Peter Pan, that idea of like, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a fable of someone who is about to go from childhood to adulthood and kind of you know, through a mythical adventure, leaving behind childish thing. The thing that always pissed me off about those movies, as a kid or as an adult, whether it's Wizard of Oz or Peter Pan, is they always have this, like, wink to the audience that, like, yeah, probably what just happened was a dreamlike adventure where the protagonist imagined this wonderful mythical land. This movie does that, too when she's back in the real world. But this movie does something that I can't think of another movie that did that I love, and I still love to this day, where when she's wondering whether it was a lesson or a dream or her imagination running off with her or whatever else, um, and she's sad about that, all of the goblins come back out to party with her one more time in the room. Uh, and I love that kind of like, it's such a Henson touch, because it's like, a, yeah, she did learn a lesson about growing up and taking on some maturity, but it, it's also better to live in a world where all these things actually exist and this actually happened to her. And that this is the only one of those stories that did the was it all a dream that was like, nope, not a dream. She has fun adventures with her goblin Muppet friends. Uh, and I can't think of a better Henson way to take that story because you know, that was the world he wanted to live in, was a world where all of this imagination actually existed. But after those months, Jim got his usual urge. I work in one capacity for a while, and then it's time to jump over to some other kind of thing. To me, it's just fun. On the next episode of The Great Henson Caper, 
when people told themselves their past with podcasts, explained their present with podcasts, foretold the future with podcasts, the best place by the fire was kept for the podcaster. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.